If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is where we are going to be hanging out this morning. And as you can imagine, uh, just being in the role that I play and thinking about things a lot, I have been thinking a lot recently about branding and marketing. Like that is just an idea that has been going through my head again and again. I, like all the time, I'm just thinking uh, about branding and marketing. And what's interesting is I, uh, as I have been uh, digging into this particular passage and the subject that we're going to deal with this morning, is uh, I've noticed and thought a lot about this week how many uh, companies, corporations make a big deal about life in their branding. Like they make a very, very big deal about life in their branding. In fact, um, so uh, about a year ago, I started working out at a gym here in Bartlett called Orange Theory Fitness. And Orange Theory Fitness's catchphrase, the thing that they uh, say uh, about themselves, or, or kind of, it, it's just two words. They say, more life. That's their catchphrase, more life. Now, that has all sorts of meanings, right? But they've, they've branded their entire experience around this concept of more life. So, like, and life for them is literally, like, your breathing hours. The, the hours that you spend breathing and your ability to enjoy them. When they say more life, that's what they're offering to you. More breathing hours, right? Extend the amount of time, as much as you can anyway, as much as within your power, extend the amount of time that you have to breathe and also your ability to enjoy those hours. That's Orange Theory Fitness. So I thought it would be fun for us to play a guessing game uh, about companies that have ideas about life and their, their slogans. So, uh, so here's our first one this morning. Save money, live better. What, anybody know? Walmart. Walmart, there we go, Vicky. Good job. Yeah. That's it, Walmart. Have you, so just think about this slogan for a second. Has anybody in this room ever been to Walmart between the hours of 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. on a Saturday? That is not what I think of when I think of Walmart between those hours, right? Like, I, I do not have that experience at all. Right, that is not living better for me. Uh, so, but but their idea when they say this is, uh, you know, when they say live better, they're they're thinking of like, okay, a better life is you're going to add convenience to your life because you get to get everything you need in kind of a one stop shop, and you're going to save a little bit of money when you shop here, right? That's uh, that's kind of their idea of living better. If you can have convenience, then you have more time to do the things that you can enjoy. Okay, how about this? Uh, I will be amazed if anybody gets this. I mean, it's pretty good. I, it's a familiar company, but we make everyday life better every day. Anybody know? Anybody know? John, you know? Oh, you've got it back there. He's got my notes back there. So he has, he's got the cheat sheet. What? It's not Whirlpool. It is, it is Clorox. Clorox makes everyday life better Every day, if you didn't know that, right? Now, that's not the first thought I would have when I think of Clorox, right? Like, you help me clean things. That's what, like, that would be a better slogan for you. We help you clean things than uh, we make everyday life better. Uh, so they give themselves a little bit too much credit. But their idea of better life here is that uh, you get more effective cleaning products. And so I guess their sense of life is maybe like, a sense of security that the clean, a clean home can give you? I don't, I just don't know. But anyway, they have an idea of a better life there that they're trying to sell to you. 
how about this one? Simplifying Home and Life. It's a pretty familiar company. A lot of people in this room use it. Simplifying Home and Life. It's Costco. Costco simplifies your home and life. And that actually, you know, that might be true. I don't shop at Costco, but we used to have a Sam's Club membership. And I do remember that, like, when we shopped at Sam's Club, it really did simplify a lot of things. You can buy things in bulk. You can buy six months worth of things at uh, Costco and really take care of a lot of uh, shopping that you need to do on the front end, right? So it did, it did simplify. And so life for them is... Uh, Life is easily hindered by complications, so we remove some of those complications for you, right? Okay, Uh, how about this? (laughs) We bring good things to life. Dr. Frankenstein. GE, good job! She got it! She got it! GE. Okay, okay. Uh, So, so yeah, all I can think of is... uh, Dr. Frankenstein and his monster that he created, right? We bring good things to life. Uh, But apparently, uh, the implication is that certain good things don't find their way into your life without us bringing them about. That's what they're trying to tell you. And so for them, I think their picture of life that they have here is like this ever-evolving human innovation and technology, right? We keep bringing those things about and bringing them to life. Nobody's going to get this one. You may not have ever heard of this company, but number six, we bring the city to life, and that is host hotels and resorts, right? And their implication with that is these cities are dead, and we give them life. Their definition of life there is something like, I guess, human activity, parties, drawing a crowd, uh, being a part of the fun, and, uh, and that happens because we're here. So I just have a, a few thoughts about all of these uh, slogans. Number one, stay in your lane, right? Like stay in your lane. You have a thing that you do, right? Don't pretend that you do more than the thing that you do, Clorox, right? Like I feel like they're trying to manipulate me when they tell me that they make my everyday life better every day, right? There's a push, and I think this is the significant thing to notice. There is a push in every single brand and product that exists to convince you that that brand or product is more significant than it actually is, right? That it's going to have a a greater impact on your life than it actually does because they want you to to have a kind of loyalty and commitment to their product. So that's the the first thought that I have. The, The second thought that I have is like, each one of them has a different definition of life. Like, they all kind of define life a different way or think of life a different way. And, and that is kind of the idea that I want to go forward with because what they're trying to do is they're trying to engage with your definition of life. They're trying to understand who you are and what you think of life, and they're trying to kind of somehow connect with you about your definition of life. And so if they think this about us, I think it's really good for us to imagine what our definition of life might be. So that's why we are in John chapter 10 today. Today we start a new series called This is Life. We're going to work our way through John chapters 10 and 11. And in these two chapters, you have a theme. And that theme is all about life. What it is, how it is imparted, where it comes from, how one might find it. Right? Because at the outset of his book, and we looked at this uh, uh, several months ago, at the outset of his book, John said these words. In John 1, verse 4, it says, 
in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in these two chapters, John chapters 10 and 11, what we start to discover is is exactly what it was that John meant when he said, in him was life. So so this is how this series is going to work. Over the next uh, four weeks, there's a week in there with my ordination service, so we'll take a break from the series with that. But over the the next four or five weeks, um, we are going to consider life, not as various people or companies might define it, but as Jesus defines it. And each week is going to give us kind of another facet of Jesus' definition of life. Like what it is that he's talking about when he talks about life. Or uh, another way to think of it is we're going to build over these four weeks a definition for what Jesus thinks true life is. So in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, this is what I'm going to do. I don't typically do this, but this is what I'm going to do this morning. I am going to just read the passage for us. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, this morning, as we consider what it means that you call us to follow you, that you have been our good shepherd, that as we try to even imagine the different things that we think about life and the different messages that we receive about what the good life looks like, that um, you would push through all of that. And Holy Spirit, by the word that you have spoken through, uh, through Jesus and then through uh, John as he wrote down these words for us, would you 
push these words into our hearts and help us to understand exactly what it is that you want us to hear? Would you help our hearts to understand what it is that uh, you want us to hold on to? Because we are so prone to, even if we hear something and learn it in our heads, to not make the connection to our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to make that connection for us this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just a little bit of a refresher. In John chapter 10, uh, gosh, a month ago now, we were in John chapter 9, and what Jesus has been doing, it seems like he's been doing this forever in the book of John. He has been talking to the religious leaders. This is actually most of John's gospel, for what it's worth. He spends time talking to religious leaders and then time talking to his disciples. That's most of what we see in John's gospel. And so what has just happened is that Jesus just healed a blind man, and the religious leaders wanted that blind man to stop telling other people that Jesus healed him, right? And the blind man wouldn't stop telling people that Jesus healed him. So what they did is that they excommunicated him. They removed him, not just from the religious system, right? That's how we think of excommunication today, right? Like, you can't come to church anymore. Well, shoot, I'll just go to that church over there, right? Like, you can't do anything about that. To be excommunicated in this man's day was to be removed from society in just about every way, right? You can't buy anything, you can't sell anything, you can't do any kind of work, you, uh, you, people are not supposed to associate with you in any way. All of this is true. He was removed from society, but after he was excommunicated, Jesus found this man, again, after he had healed him, and he talked to him, and the man started following Jesus, Right, so, so in verse 35, or sorry, verse 38 of chapter 9, we'll just kind of refresh what just happened. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. Now, he's not just talking about uh, seeing like with your eyes. He's talking about spiritual perception and the seeing with your eyes, the kind of healing this man and giving him sight again was an illustration for this uh, spiritual perception, right? That those who do not see may see and that those who see, or rather we might think of it as those who think they see, may become blind, So blindness is both a literal situation and a metaphor for a spiritual state. And then in verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is not done talking to them about this for what it's worth. He does not stop at this point. He keeps going and keeps engaging with them along these lines. And you know what? That is beautiful. Because his continuing to talk is actually continuing to offer them more opportunities to repent. More opportunities to understand who he is and actually change their mind and change their actions and repent to see him for who he actually is. So he's going to give them, what he's going to do in chapter 10 is give them a parable to help them understand realities around what is taking place as the blind man and people like the blind man kind of 
turn away from their past and former lives and former ways of going about and believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. He's going to help them understand these things, and that brings us into chapter 10. He says, let me explain to you how this works. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Uh, Jesus, what he is doing for us in these beginning verses is he is setting up for us the characters in the story, right? He is going to try to convey a parable to teach something to the people, and so he introduces the characters in the story to us. Number one, you have a shepherd. Number two, you have uh, a thief and a robber. And number three, you have the shepherd's sheep. There's also a gatekeeper there. We're not going to worry about the gatekeeper. We're really focused on those three, the shepherd, the thief, and the robber, and the shepherd's sheep. And he is going to now use this parable as a way of explaining to the religious leaders what is happening around them as some people are confused about Jesus and some people go away from Jesus and some people actually follow Jesus. Verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Four, they know his voice. Verse five, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So to kind of give an illustration of this, um, my daughter Autumn will sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and being disoriented by the fact that it's dark in her room and she is alone by herself, right? She will cry out for mommy or daddy, right? That is just kind of what she does. And so me kind of wanting to build in her a trust that when she calls out for dad, that dad is actually going to come, right? I respond quickly. And instinctually, the first thing that I do when I open the door, because I know that it's dark and I know that she can't see, instinctually what I do, I open the door and I say her name and I let her know that I'm here in the room with her, right? Because when I open the door, she cannot see. It's not, uh, you, uh, sometimes I have the little light on my phone, so I walk in, like, because the whole house is dark, right? So I walk in, I have the little light on my phone, and then I shine it up. And I know that if she looks at me, all she's going to see is that light. So she still won't be able to see me or who it is that's coming into the room. So I'm sure to say her name, and I let her know that I'm here. Why? Because she recognizes my voice, right? When I talk, even though she can't see me, she will know that I am coming into the room and that I'm here with her. Now imagine with me that she wakes up and calls out and hears a voice that is not my voice or not my wife's voice. She's going to want nothing to do with that voice, right? Like, sorry if I'm giving you nightmares here, right? But that's like, she, she will have nothing to do with that voice. She knows that that is not a good voice and not to trust it because she's not familiar with it in the middle of the night when it's dark and she can't see anything. And Jesus essentially says the shepherd's sheep follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow the robber's voice because that voice does not compute for them. It is, there's no familiarity. It does not make sense to them. So this is the first part of the parable, and what is he trying to say here? For what it's worth, the next verse is going to tell us that they don't get it, right? So they don't get it, but we have the benefit of uh, kind of living after this passage was written, so we can start to understand these things, right? 
we have the benefit of hindsight. What was their last question to Jesus? Are we also blind? That's what they asked him. And what Jesus is doing is he is answering their question. Because they are disoriented by this man who now believes in Jesus, even though Jesus is the reason that he got excommunicated. And so what Jesus is trying to do is explain to them actually who they are in the story and who that blind man is in the story and what's going on when people believe. So Jesus, as he tells this story, he clearly sees himself as the shepherd. He clearly sees the formerly blind man as one of the sheep and those like him as the sheep, which must mean that he sees the Pharisees, the religious leaders, as the thieves and the robbers. And Jesus says, he followed me because he knows my voice. When you taught and interrogated him and told him to lie about the things that I did for him, he accepted your excommunication quite freely because he doesn't know your voice. In fact, he sees the hypocrisy within your voice. And that is kind of the clear initial meaning, right? He listened to me and followed me and left you and stopped following you because the sheep follow the shepherd's lead, right? That's how this works. But in verse 6, it makes it clear that they didn't get that. So Jesus has to go kind of into another facet of his explanation. So verse 7, it says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So he's going to continue using this shepherd metaphor, but kind of will change how several of the characters function. So in the first explanation, it's about the shepherd leading and the sheep following. But here, it's about him being the door or the gate. And the focus is instead of on this sense that the shepherd is leading, uh, additionally, it's a, a sense of security that is provided for the sheep, right? A, a gate is a place of protection. Uh, the sheep go in through the gate, and the gate is able to close, and nobody can, else can get into where the sheep are. So first, he's going to have us consider robbers. Verse 8 and 9, all who came before me, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the robbers are threatening, right? They are no good for the sheep. And, and so Jesus is kind of saying, like, many of these robbers, they have shown up before me. And you notice now he's making it clear, I'm in the story. I am the shepherd in the story, right? So, uh, they, they showed up before me, and the sheep saw them for what they are. So for what it's worth, who are the people who came before Jesus in this immediate context? Well, you have the religious leaders, certainly the Pharisees. You also have, for what it's worth, King Herod. He's a local leader. He's trying to draw people into following him, into kind of following his ways. Uh, you have people like the Zealots, who were a political movement, a Jewish movement, and they were trying to kind of uh, organize militant Jews to take over the kingdom of Israel, to kick out the Romans, right? Uh, there are the Essenes, which is a kind of a group of Jewish people who have secluded themselves from the rest of Jewish society and live out by themselves in this little space and build their own little community out there that's very serious about law following. There are the Sadducees, another group of Jewish people who kind of don't think anything about a resurrection. They don't uh, believe uh, many things about what uh, the miracles and different things that are written in the Bible. And then you have... Um, 
just at this time, for what it's worth, a number of other false messiahs who are coming around and telling people to follow them, right? All of these things are happening, and, and Jesus is kind of trying to say they all came and they all try to draw people to them and their ways of seeing the world and their ways of operating, right? But Jesus says, you know what? My sheep, they don't listen to robbers. They stay safe with me as their protector. They come in through me, and as a result, they don't need to worry about the robbers. So another reality of who this shepherd is is that the shepherd protects and provides for the sheep. Notice how he says, uh, if they come through me, they have freedom to go in and out and find pasture, and they have everything they need. The, the implication is that the shepherd or the sheep will always be taken care of. Nothing can get to the sheep. Nothing can harm the sheep if they come through me. So you, you'll notice now Jesus even more starts to weave in and out of the metaphor and reality. He, he kind of flows back and forth between the two. He moves from image and illustration to reality. So verse 10, he says this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So think of this in the context of who each of these characters represents, right? Jesus is essentially saying, Pharisees, you had nothing to offer the man. In fact, you would have kept his life miserable, continued placing heavy burden upon him, failing to recognize him with in inherent dignity and value, telling him that his blindness is a result of his own sin and his parents' sin. But me, I came not to take anything from him. I came not to burden him. I came to give life to him. I came that he might have abundance. So, so while the immediate context kind of explains what happened with the blind man, right, in a much bigger way, Jesus kind of takes this and explains the story of really what happens in all of human history, right? So, so there are the Pharisees, and they're offering a way of life, and they come uh, for that blind man. They do not give him dignity or value, and they would have uh, stolen and killed and destroyed, right? Uh, he's saying, you know what? In all of history, there have always been thieves. There have always been people who are trying to draw sheep to themselves, trying to draw sheep into their ways of thinking, trying to draw people into their ways of seeing the world, trying to draw people into the ways of living. And what, they do, what do they do with their sheep? They offer hope to the sheep, whatever their version of hope is. They make promises to the sheep. They tell them a story about the good life and say, if you live this way, if you do these things, then you will have the good life. They entice the sheep by accessing baser desires. They offer the sheep uh, pleasure and luxury, ease, entertainment, distraction, status, power, approval, affirmation. They list these things off and they offer them. And you know what? Sometimes they might even make good on their promises for a period of time. But inevitably, those enticing actually have no interest in your good. The thing that is enticing you actually wants to shape you into its image. Its goal is to ensure that you belong to it. And then to wreck your life, by giving you everything you ever wanted until you do die devoted to it in its clutches, or to take advantage of you until you have nothing left. 
the thing calling for your devotion, and this is the point of what Jesus is trying to say. Pharisees, you call for the devotion of these people. The, the thieves that call for our devotion, they do not care for you. And that's what he's saying about the Pharisees. You devalued this man. You didn't even know his name. You walk by him every day, and you just say, he has that disease because he sinned or his parents sinned. You offer him no value. You do not care for them. Think of the promises of the major political movements of the world, like in the last 150 years. Movements like Nazism in Germany. Like, what did it offer? It actually offered people a utopia of perfect human living. If we can all get together and we can all uh, think the same thing and work the same way, and what did it ultimately reap? Death and destruction. Think of movements like the, uh, things in the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union or the Chinese Communist Party or militant terrorism movements like the uh, Lord's Resistance Army or ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Like all of these things, each of them actually extend to people and offer them a vision of the good life and say, do this and you will have the good life. And each of them, at the end of the day, call for the devotion of people and each of them lead to death and destruction and pain and sorrow. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the, the reality that thieves leave behind the thieves, right? Jesus has already said, like, the, 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 the one who is at work behind what the Pharisees are doing, like, he tells them, you are of your father the devil, right? And so when he's talking about thieves and robbers, and he says a thief and a robber comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He certainly has in his mind not only the work that the general thieves out there in the world are doing, but that there is a thief behind the thieves. Right? So he certainly understands that the devil is at work in all of those things to entice people and shape those people into his image. And at the end of the day, the thief sends hosts of thieves who say, follow me, find true life with me, find satisfaction with me, find purpose with me, find fulfillment with me. And if they do not destroy you outright as you follow them, they make you fat and happy while you promote their cause until you die. And they have no concept of dignity because to them you are a tool that can be thrown away. And then he says, that's the thief. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is constantly contrasting himself with uh, the ways of life that are being extended to people. He's saying, uh, I am I, different than all of the ways that you have been offered up until this point, that they have been offered up to this point. He says, me, on the other hand, my call to my sheep is not about what I will take from them, but what I have to give to them. I came that the sheep might truly live. He says abundantly. The idea of abundantly is that it's beyond what is necessary. Right? That is, uh, that's the idea that is used in that word. It's beyond what is necessary. Or uh, you might think of it like uh, if I'm filling up a glass and I fill up what is necessary to the, to the glass, I would just fill it up to the top, right? But the idea that this gives is that it's filled to overflowing. 
right? You have more than you could possibly need. So you might be inclined to think that Jesus is, when he talks about this idea of filled to overflowing, that, that he's talking about the eternalness of the life that he offers. But that's actually like only one piece of abundance, right? The life that he offers is not only forever, but what did he already say? He said they go in and out and they find pasture. The idea behind that is that the life that he offers has tremendous freedom to it, right? And and security gives you freedom. When you know that you are safe on all sides and you do not have to be concerned, then you have tremendous freedom within the boundaries that you've been given. This life also has tremendous satisfaction and fulfillment. The sheep find pasture wherever they need it. This life has a core relational nature to it, that the sheep know the shepherd and have a relationship with the sheep, and the the, the life has clear purpose, that the sheep just follow the shepherd wherever he goes. Right? So, So there may be many who offer you life, who might call you to follow them, or many ways of life or interests or things that entice you, that offer you something and say, uh, go here. But Jesus says, my sheep follow me because I actually give them life. I don't just offer them something and lie to them. I actually give them life. Now, if Jesus stopped at that point, you might look at Jesus and say, okay, so he's just showing himself to be another option among options, right? He's just another person who is saying, oh, find life here. I have life. Come follow me. But it's interesting that the foundation of this life that he offers, the foundation is how he pictures himself ensuring that life for his sheep. Verse 11, he says, I am not just any shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The picture that he offers here is his, his himself standing between uh, the thieves and the robbers. And actually, in just a second, he's going to talk about himself standing between the wolves that might come against the sheep. Right? He essentially says, this is how the sheep know that I'm legit. Because I am prepared to put all of my well-being on the line for their sake. To keep them out of the thieves' clutches. And then as if to prove his genuineness, he says this, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, right? So he's like, he's saying, I'm not just any person that would come along for the sheep, right? If, if I were a hired hand who does not own the sheep, I would see the wolf coming and I would flee. And the wolf would snatch them and scatter them. He's saying a hired hand flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Right? He's saying, it is my willingness to lay down my life that proves the value that I place on the sheep. If I were not genuine, I would not lay down my life. Because I would not care for the sheep to that extent. But because they're my sheep, I'll lay down. And the idea that gives us about the shepherd, we have several ideas coming out of this. But it's that the shepherd would die for the life of the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. 
and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one, sh- one shepherd. So remember what I said earlier about Jesus weaving out of like image and reality. Uh, he is now talking about more and more about the reality of the things that the images represent. Right? Jesus does that here. He draws their attention to his relationship with the Father. And the reason he draws their attention to his relationship with the Father is that it's a way of illustrating the kind of relationship that he as the shepherd has with the sheep. Right? He talks about how this is not just uh, about the sheep here, right? Like, uh, as he relates to the Father, him and the Father are very simpatico, right? They have a, a relationship, and Jesus is all the time talking to his Father and about his Father and doing his Father's will. That's the kind of relationship that he has with his sheep. That's the kind of bond that they share. And then he says, this is not about the sheep that are here in this territory, the ones that you see believing in me, but you know what? There are other sheep who are far away who are not in this place, and I'm going to draw them in as well. They're scattered, and I need to go gather them. There are others to whom uh, I can extend life, whom I can save from the robbers. And so in verse 17, this is what it says. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He's saying, I'm doing the thing that my Father sent me to do. It has always been his impulse and my impulse to do this. And the Father loves me. Now certainly, the Father's love is not based on the Son's willingness to die. And things get lost in translation a little bit. In the original language, uh, the, the relationship can go either way. You could actually read it like this. Because the Father loves me, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Right? But here's the point. The foundational illustration of the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd is the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And in it, Jesus names the source of his own motivation for his sheep. And his sheep recognize it. What does he say at the outset? For this reason, the Father loves me. The Father has a deep love for me. And I'm telling you that so that you understand the kind of relationship that I have with my sheep. I love my sheep. Right? It's not utility that motivates Jesus. It's not status or power that motivates Jesus for what it's worth. Eternally, he has those things already anyway. He needs nothing from us. In fact, he has no need for any other motivation. There's nothing that we can give him that he doesn't already have. But he comes and lays down his life for one reason. He loves us. Right? If he has the Father, he has everything he needs already, which means that if he's willing to die, the core explanation for his motivation is love. And church, what that means is very clearly the character of the shepherd is that he loves the sheep. Right, so at the outset, what we said that we were trying to do is we're trying to grasp Jesus' definition of life. And it's really interesting to me that Jesus does not start giving his definition by telling us, here, let me tell you what life is and describe all the facets of it. Right, he doesn't describe its qualities. And you know what? Thieves and robbers, they do that. 
thieves and robbers tell you about the kind of life that they can give you, Jesus does not start by describing the kind of life that he gives you. Jesus defines life by the one who leads you to it. Jesus defines life by saying, actually, I'm going there, follow me. So the first piece of our definition of life that we will kind of take into consideration in this series is this. True life is wherever the shepherd leads. Follow him there. Follow him there. You may not know exactly what it looks like. You may not have all the details of the kind of fulfillment that you will receive or the kind of satisfaction that it will bring, but here's the reality. He's going there. That's the place that he is leading to. And life is defined by the fact that he leads us there. So what? So there's a question that I feel like often comes up with this passage in particular, and so I feel like it's necessary to address it. If life with Jesus is abundant, why do I struggle to experience it? If that's what it says here in this passage, that Jesus says, uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I am giving life, and not only life, but life abundantly, why do I struggle to have that experience sometimes? So um, I have a number of reasons to kind of give us for this. I have four, actually. The first one I want to give us is this, that our expectations of what we call life are not aligned with the shepherd's expectations, because What's really incredible is that in various places, Jesus says something like, the life that you live following me is taking up your cross and dying daily. Right, the life that you live following me is one that could come with a great persecution, great social exclusion, that people actually might want to kill you because you follow me. Right, so if our expectation of life is, uh, I need to be comfortable and I need to have a lot of money, and I need to have a lot of resources, and I don't need to worry about anything around me, that I'll always have power and status and the approval of my peers, that is not life in Jesus' mind, right? So our expectation of life uh, is not aligned with the shepherd. That's one reason we might struggle to experience it, but number two, it could be that we are being enticed by a thief, Right? It's possible that we have considered something that the thief has to offer us. Right? And that thing, whatever it is, whether it be a particular sin or a pattern that we want to walk into or a, a place of enjoyment that we know God doesn't want for us, but we're really interested in it, that thing has appeal to us. And then we start to think about it a lot. Think about what it could mean. Then we let others tell us how right we are for wanting that thing. And we listen to that thing as it stirs our passions to make it ultimate in our hearts. And then we start to believe that God is keeping something from us that we really deserve. Then we start to see how life, if we don't get that thing, life is going to be really, really empty. And you know what? You can start to get really discontent with your life if you believe that God is holding back from you something that you deserve. We get really discontent with the good things that Jesus wants for us. And you know what? Life is going to be really hard to live abundantly if you're being enticed by something you you think God is holding back from you. So that's one possibility. Another explanation for it is that we have said yes to a thief. 
So not only have you been enticed by it, but now you've said yes to it. And if you are actively believing in and pursuing something else besides Jesus as what you would call ultimate in your life, I want to tell you, like, following Jesus is going to have very little appeal to you if you're making something else ultimate until at least one of two things happens, right? Number one, and this would be a blessing, the Spirit of God wrecks you to witness and have genuine sorrow over the fact that you are bending your knee to the devil who wants to shape you into his image. That is the gracious answer. If God allows that to happen to you, thank God for that. Because the other option is, the thief wreaks havoc in your life, and you experience the destruction that he can cause firsthand. And get this, that God would let either happen to you is a blessing and a gift, Because both of those things help to humble you and see how bankrupt the thief is. It is a gift because in allowing you to come to that realization, he has created the possibility that you might stop listening to the thief and that you might start hearing or hearing again the voice of the shepherd. And then finally, the fourth reason is this. We struggle to believe that God really loves us. This is why it's hard, to, it's hard to have abundant life because, you know, quite honestly, we think we're too broken, too unlovable, too avoidable. Like, the, the things, I mean, gosh, does Jesus know the things that I did this week? The things that I did last month? The things that I said to that person? The things that I've done over the course of my life? You know what? Uh, Jesus might say that he loves me, but that certainly can't be a very personal love that he has for me. And that brings me to my second so what, which is this. If you could just be convinced of one thing, it would change everything. One of the things that I pray for you as the church that God has called me to, for my church most often, for the individuals in my church as you sit in your seats, the things that I pray for you most often is that there would be nothing more real to you in your mind than the reality that your creator loves you deeply. That it would be the most real and the most experiential thing, that the reality of his love for you would be shed so deeply in your hearts that you could believe nothing else before you believe that. That he values you. Because we tend to see God as a transcendent judge who's constantly disappointed in our subpar performance. Right? That's that Jesus died for us more out of duty than anything else, right? Because he was just supposed to do it. Because that's just the way God had kind of designed things cosmically. And that, that God's actual preference with us is to kind of remain distant from us. All of those are lies from the pit of hell. I don't care what you did last week, last year, last night. Listen to your shepherd's voice. He loves you. You know how I know? Because he laid down his life for you. And it is when you are convinced of the shepherd's love for you, despite your weakness and brokenness, that you become willing to forsake the thieves and follow the shepherd wholly. And with that being said, we're going to transition to the table.